Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a typical Disney movie, the writers present a protagonist coming of age who faces adversity, usually an identity crisis, an injustice, or both, discovers who they are, overcomes their challenge, and then finally realizes their true destiny as king, queen, or a special person of sorts who can change the world. These stories are popular because they soothe our ego with reassurances of our self-importance and unique value. From the perspective of scripture, they're the worst kind of lie. In the ancient world, it was bad enough that kings and emperors believed in their unique value and special destiny. Now, everyone is a Caesar in their own right. Yikes! Thankfully, the Mathean genealogy not only disbelieves David's destiny, but works actively to subvert it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 223 of the Bible as Literature podcast. How are you, Richard? I'm doing great. How about you, Father? I'm excited to get back to these names in the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. It's like Christmas in April. By the time we get to verse 17, we're expecting the following week to be the celebration of Nativity. But since we're disciples of Paul and we don't mark the seasons, it's Christmas whenever Matthew says it's Christmas. Aram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. What an interesting verse packed with meaning. And I know our listeners are thinking, what are these guys talking about? Well, if you do some investigation into the background of the names, you begin to see that verse 4 is a setup for the disruption in verse 5, and then ultimately the landing punch in verse 6. We talked about Aram last week, Richard, but Aminadab is an interesting name. In Hebrew, it means the people of liberality, but he's also the father-in-law of Aaron the priest. Right. One of the things that makes it a little bit tricky in Greek is that when they transcribe these names, it changes them. And so you have to do a little bit of work to get back to the original. Since this is a list of names, it's easy enough to see where these people fit in the Old Testament. But just for an example, Greek does not have the sound sh. And so they write the sound sh with a s. So Salmon is Shalmon, Shalom, Shalom, Shalem. Those are all related words. Aminadab begins with the Hebrew letter Ein, which is equivalent to the Arabic Ein, which is not represented. So it's Aminadab. Also the sound H in Nason, it's actually 
nahashon. You have to understand what the Greek is doing when it's transcribing those sounds, and then back transcribe to see what the Hebrew was, and then bring that Hebrew meaning into these names as you're reading this list, because it is a fascinating list. If you are not pushing the text to mean everything that it could mean, you're not pushing it hard enough. It's better to push it and come up with a reading that you then have to discard afterwards because it's not convincing or it doesn't fit with the context than it is to just say, oh, well, the name's just a name. Let's just keep going. We are here to push the text as hard as we can to try to extract as much meaning as we can going as slowly as possible through these verses that on first blush have no meaning at all other than a list of people. Aminadab, as you said, or Aminadab, as we say it in English, the basic fact that he's the father-in-law of Aaron has to be held closely as we move through the other names, because Nahshon sounds very similar to and is related in the functional sense in terms of the consonantal root to the word Nahash in Hebrew, which means serpent, which is also a very important term in the book of Genesis. So it's interesting that you have the first name, Aminadab, which is connected again to Aaron. Then you have a name which implies a potential connection to Genesis and the serpent. And he himself is the father of Shalmon, if you say it correctly in the original Hebrew, who is the father of Boaz. But the key here is that Shalmon was the one who established the city of Bethlehem. And the city of Bethlehem is the city of David. So we're talking about the origins of the kingly city. And we don't begin with those origins. We're already down on line four of this genealogy. One would think that we had reached the penultimate leading up to the birth of David. We have the priestly line and we have the establishment of the city. But then there's this very uncomfortable mention of Nahshon, which implies Nahash. And then comes verse 5. And something disruptive again happens in verse 5. You would expect that right after this verse, we'd move on from the establishment of the city to the birth of the king. But we don't. We are interrupted in verse 5, which we'll come to in a moment, by something extremely disruptive. And it's interesting to see how these words are used here. Ami, the beginning of Hosea, when there is this curse against the second child, he is called Lo Ami, not my people. And then we have Nahashon because we have Nahash, which means serpent in the noun form, but in the verb form, it means to do fortune telling or augury or that sort of thing, which is something that is intention with the priesthood. Aaron, the head of the priestly family, is married to the sister of somebody whose name not only is related to serpent, but also to these dark arts, so to speak, of fortune-telling. So we have the people that claim to be honorable. We have someone who's related to fortune-telling that's running parallel to the line of the priesthood. 
So running parallel to the priesthood, producing the kingly line, producing the kingly city, we have to be aware of where the line is going, that it sounds like it's going to a bad place. And like you said, Father, we're going to be disrupted here in verse 5, and it's fascinating what happens next. I want to read verse 6 first and then come back to verse 5 and 6, because if you are thinking the way an addressee of the text in their historical context is thinking. If you were thinking that way in that setting, as I said, you would expect to go from the founder of Bethlehem to the birth of the king. You would expect to end with the father of Shalmon, and then here Jesse was the father of David the king. But that's not what you hear. What you hear next is Shalmon, or Shalmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Now, a couple things about this verse. We know that Rahab was a prostitute. We know that in the story of Ruth, Boaz was an oddly noble character, and he was the father of Obed, the servant, the slave, Abd. It's the same in Arabic and in Hebrew, by Ruth, the Moabitess. So out of the blue, in between the establishment of the city of David and the birth of the king, you have this drama about a prostitute, her son, and then a foreign woman. And how these names come together to give us Jesse, who is the father of David. There's this theme of these women. That's the first thing I notice when I read five is like, wait a second, we have women that are put in here. Why are the mothers mentioned here? Well, the last mother we had was Tamar. We talked about that in a previous episode, about that strange episode with the daughter-in-law having to pose as a harlot, as a prostitute. And now we have Rahab, who is a harlot and a foreigner. And then we have Ruth, who just appears literally in Boaz's tent in order to seduce him. We begin, though, with Rahab, and that name means breadth or width. We have this narrowing down to the city of David and the house of David, but right before that, we get this broadening that happens as we bring these foreigners in, because here's one of the problems. We actually know from the Torah that someone among the Moabites is not allowed into the congregation unto the seventh generation, but David himself is the grandson of a Moabitess. Technically, according to Torah, he's not allowed to enter the congregation. These women are being inserted into this line. We would expect father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son. But here we have this disruption. So far now, three women, and they're all disreputable women, but they are all contributing to this line. And what's even more interesting is that Rahab, sheltered the Israelite spies as they were in Jericho. She helped them out because she was fearful of the Lord. She believed that the Lord was faithful in what he said he was going to do. And we had Ruth, who did everything she did, even to be disreputable, just so she could take care of her widowed mother-in-law. In spite of the fact that they were foreign and they were prostitutes, they did the correct thing by taking care of the stranger, the Israelites, and taking care of the widow, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. They are all foreigners acting according to Torah. And this is what is fascinating about this disruption here before we finally get to David. It's important to note, and I actually said this in my book, I talked about the role of patriarchy in the ancient world and how my father's own sense of patriarchy helped me understand the problem 
of Mary suddenly being the mother of Jesus at the end of the genealogy. We'll come to that much later. But here I want to point out that it is a text that's very much aware of the patriarchal system and requires that you understand the patriarchal system. But that does not mean that it accepts the patriarchal system. It's actually critical of it. But the way that it's critical is on two different fronts. And this is the same way that Paul deals with patriarchal authority in the Roman household. He doesn't get rid of it. He simply emasculates it and then supplants it with God as the patriarch. Because if you supplant it with women the way contemporary feminists want to do, you're just stuck with a whole new array of abusers who happen to be women. So here you have patriarchy being disrupted by women who are unclean, in effect. But that's not enough. God himself still has to intervene and provide his seed. That's the point that I'm driving at. So it's anti-patriarchal, but it's not pro-matriarchal. It's disrupting the patriarchy of the human seed, which is wielded as a mechanism of dynasty and power by men in the ancient world, and saying, with all due respect, there's only one male, and his throne is in the heavens, and everyone else in Israel is his bride. It's very powerful, Richard. Yes, and I love it that the grandfather of David is named Slave. I think that's just a wonderful addition to this line, who begat Jesse, and that means my wealth. So we have the slave that produces wealth that produces David. Each one of these names represents an idea or a concept or even part of a story. Once you line up these names, you don't just have a list of names. You have a list of qualities. You have a list of stories. Once you list those stories, then you've got an even broader story, and it tells a story in and of itself. So this isn't just a genealogy. Like you said, this is undermining patriarchy. This is undermining power. It's undermining wealth. It's undermining prestige. In each one of these names, there's something going on which undermines the power or the potential prestige of these men because, no, your mother really is a whore. And the funny thing is that you are positioning David through the prostitute and the foreigner to be put on his knees before the ark carrying the tablet of the law in the wilderness. You are positioning David to be the slave. Again, I mentioned the Roman household just a moment ago. This is what Paul does. He says, fine, you're the king, you're the father, you're the head, you're the whatever. Fine, but you are the obed of the Torah. And if you're willing to be the Obed, which, by the way, is what happened in First Chronicles, when one of David's company transgressed the ark, it didn't go to Bethlehem. It went to Obed, the servant who would be the custodian of the ark. So David, are you really the king? Are you willing to put yourself under the authority of the Torah? Are you an Obed or not? It's beyond anti-patriarchal. It's ultimately anti-human. It's emasculating all of us. It's stripping us of our ability to assert anything other than the wisdom of God's instruction. This is what establishes the kingly city, which is not located in Palestine, in Judea. It is not. Just like Jerusalem is not located in Judea on a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Just like the king who comes from the Lord's city, is not a king who sits on a throne made by human hands. David is not really the king. 
even though we hear in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And here, it's so painful to hear the second part of verse 6, because we all know the betrayal and the adultery and the treachery of David in verse 6, part B. The first thing that strikes me when you read that, Father, as I follow along in the Greek, in the SBL version of the Greek, it actually does not have Bathsheba named. What I love about it is the hole that it leaves because David begot Solomon from the one who belonged to Uriah. And the one is feminine, so it has to be a woman. From the woman who belonged to Uriah the one who was Uriah's. So we have this line of all these mothers with these disreputable backgrounds, and then the one who doesn't get named, her husband is named. And it's the husband that David tried to kill. The one that is left out is left out as a witness against King David. And it's beautiful the way the author, just by leaving out that name, I mean, for heaven's sake, we should be happy that he left out a name. I mean, there's so many names. But leaving out the name of Bathsheba, the one we would want to hear that obviously the translators of the NASB wanted to leave in, but it's left out because he begat him of Uriah's wife. There it is. In the first part of the verse, Jesse becomes the father of David the king. You have the birth of the king. And before you even finish verse 6, already we know that he was an adulterer and a betrayer and that his betrayal came by means of murder. So whether Bathsheba is mentioned or not, the point stands, and I agree actually with you that the manuscripts that exclude the name somehow make it all the more painful, the weight of the shame of David's behavior. Now here, it bears repeating something we've said many times on the podcast, that Shaul, Saul, means asked for. And he was asked for against the will of God because the people wanted to have a king just like all the nations. And here in verse 6, we see the fruit of what was asked for, which again is betrayal, treachery, adultery, and the most shameful type of murder, the murder of a close friend, in order to be able to have your way with his wife. And then the son of that union is Solomon, and we know him as Solomon the Wise. He's not mentioned as Solomon the Wise, but Shalomo, and it's related to the ancestor Salmon. So we don't necessarily pick this up when we read the English, but the names are related. We went from this difficult situation beforehand that ended with Shalmon was then disrupted by these peculiar women. But here we go back to that situation once David makes a misstep by going with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we go back to the way things were before this line. We had a negative situation which was disrupted, but now we're just going back to that same situation. And this is triggered by the names Shalmon and Shalomo, which are related in Hebrew. This is a good place to stop, Richard. We'll pick up next week with verse 7. I look forward to talking about Solomon and his offspring. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.